this is what taught me to think about that exit on those initial loans the most. Cause then if you're going to just have that loan for a year and a half, like the rate, it's obviously important, but it's more important to have that 1% or zero yeah. exit. Whereas if you did a, you're not thinking and you say, oh, I'll do yield maintenance and then rates move a little and it's 20% to break your loan. Well, that's then you like, you need to match up your exit with your, with your business plan. I, I'd love to see that spreadsheet and hear your and Kunder's conversations on the yeah. analysis there. I well, mean, that, there's a lot of things to think about. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19-year-old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real-life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. All right, welcome back to the Rise and Invest podcast. I'm here today with Jim Voza, lender at CBRE. He specializes in Fannie and Freddie small balance loans. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different than some of the prior ones where we kind of were pretty pretty broad talking about a lot of different topics today. Like what I really want to do is do a deep dive into the program. You got the perfect guy for that today. Since this is what Jim specializes in. That's right. Jim, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. I appreciate you having me. And then just real quick on, we're going to get into Freddie and Fannie small balance program. In most cities, that would be uh, 5 million or less for a loan amount. Really, we're going to 7.5 million in top and standard markets, 6 million in the entire country. Really, 6 million and under, and, and you can get up to 7.5 million in top and standard markets. And I think every market I've been has been a top, top. market. Which, like, what's sort of the cutoff? How do they do that? Really, Freddie Mac defines four specific markets across the country in their small balance programs. We have top and standard markets really are going to be your top 50 markets across the country. Chicago, where we're sitting right now, Los Angeles, Dallas, Atlanta, New York, top markets. And then if we get into a Madison, Wisconsin, you're going to, in Milwaukee, you're going to be more a standard market. And those markets, we, we can get up to seven and a half million regularly. Uh, yeah, and then we get into some of the smaller tertiary markets. I mean. Around here, we know a, a Des Moines, Iowa would be a small market. You know, Carbondale, Illinois, a very small market. Still have vast capabilities in those markets as well, but we're going to top out at a $6 million level on the on the Freddie Mac side. Fannie Mae side across the country really is a $6 million maximum for the small balance okay. product. Across all markets. Exactly. exactly. And then really like what, I guess to circle back how we've used the, the program, it was really kind of like it's transformational for my career in terms of finding this program. Back in 2014, we had bought three value-add apartment deals in Chicago. We had created the value, raised the rents, improved the value a ton. And we were trying to figure out what to do. We had one person who invested $3 million in those deals, about $10 million of property to start. And we're, right. we're wondering, what should we do? Should we sell and then do, you know, just repeat and then buy $10 million more? And then kind of the guy who we had previously had, Steve Kundert, on the podcast, he I was working with him and he he connected us to this program and was we were able to refinance out all of our initial equity on those deals and keep the properties. And then we ended up doing that multiple times. We bought those properties 2013, refied out all our money in 2014 or 2015. Then we bought another 10 million of property with the 3 million, then did that again, refied all the money out in 2017, bought more property, right. then refied all the money out in 2019. I mean, that's not the only point of the program, but 
we were able to take $3 million and then by doing good deals, turn that into $30 million of property that we, we still own them all. You're so describing a really a good chunk of my business, which would be acquire value add, do your work, stabilize the properties, and then get to a point where you want to lock up long-term financing get a, a nice long-term interest rate and, and cash flow those properties. A, a lot of what I do, a good chunk of what I do is that cash out refinance with sponsors like yourself or some groups that are going to a real heavy value add where yeah. a big, heavy construction components going into it. And a year, 18 months, two years later, when they've got that property stabilized, uh, let's put financing to bed, cash out refinance. And then most of these sponsors are interested in going to find the next deal and doing it all over again. Big portion of what I do is, is exactly that. Of course, we do acquisition financing and straight refinance deals as well. But big, big, big chunk is cash out refinance. If you're buying a stabilized property right away, this is a great program to go to yep. or I think it's the best program for long-term money out there on apartments for sure. If you can check all the boxes and be in the right deal with like the, the process, once you do it a couple of times, it's pretty simple. There's right. a checklist. You got to work through it. It's more stuff than a bank or other. Yeah. Maybe, but I guess actually maybe before we dive too much into the actual small balance programs, maybe let's, let's hear about your, your background. How'd you get here? I sure. mean, your, your, your title, you're more or less, you're originating for the whole Midwest. You're really... You know, a lot of people are maybe starting out as lenders. They want to get to your spot. So for CBRE right now, I'm a, I'm a senior vice president. I work out of our Chicago office. My, my primary focus is I'm a dedicated originator for our small balance Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae programs. It's really all I do day in and day out. My career started really in commercial banking with LaSalle Bank out of, out of the Chicago office. <clears throat> I came out of University of Illinois in Champaign. And the way I got into real estate is I got a job really not knowing much about what I was getting into, but a good name that I knew with LaSalle Bank and their commercial lending program went through a, a probably six to 12 month program with the team, started with 30 recent graduates, went through a rigorous credit training program over a couple months, then did rotations throughout their different LaSalle Bank's different commercial programs. And that would be C&I Lending to middle market Business. businesses, and then through real estate programs as well with groups that did a lot of construction financing and frankly, permanent financing across all property types. Nice. At LaSalle Bank, I, I really learned the basics of underwriting bank loans. And half of that was real estate loans, and it was across industrial, office, retail, and multifamily. That's how I got into the program. I stayed at LaSalle Bank for three years, about two, 1999, I left and went into a consulting program, not real estate related at all, with a totally different company, and quickly realized that that was not a path I was interested in. Came back into real estate lending with GE Capital. Oh, nice. And that was my really first intro into non-recourse lending yeah, at GE what year, Capital. What, what years are these? So this was 97 to 99 LaSalle Bank. It was really mid-97 to late-99 LaSalle Bank. That experience, I cannot tell you how great it was, just because of the education, being thrown into real live deals, and starting with a group of 30 individuals at the same time with the same goals, many of which I'm still in touch with, many of which are still involved in, in commercial real estate. I moved to Chicago in 2012, and I still hear people talk about LaSalle Bank. Yeah. That was, you know, great program. A lot of people came out of there. Great program. And... and and lasted there until 1999. Wish I would have stayed longer, frankly, but but uh, chased a different career opportunity and was there from 99 until about 01 and then jumped back in, into commercial yeah. real estate lending with, with GE Capital. GE Capital was 01 for, and that was a 13-year run doing 
Again, all non-recourse financing, virtually all non-recourse financing. Every now and then we'd throw some recourse in there. But our specialty really was single tenant net lease financing, office, industrial, retail. And then we got a little bit into multifamily lending uh, towards the second half of my career at, at, at GE Capital. Did you know Mike Hansen there? He was there for a year, I believe. He was he was uh, on the sound, podcast. That name sounds familiar to me. He worked at Merrill Lynch Capital. Okay, and GE. Yes. He was just a few episodes ago as a guest. A different group than mine, but uh, that name sounds familiar <clears throat> to me. I wonder if I know him from that from then or from these days. Yeah, because he. I mean, actually, because he's helped on a lot of my deals. I'm sure you've talked to him on doing a walkthrough or something. Yeah. But he, because he, he I mean, curious. Evergreen, Oakley, Clyburn, he was yeah, managing those yeah. Wicker Park. But he, I don't know if he ever told you, he was at Merrill Lynch Capital for a year or two and then G Capital. I know that group. Yeah. Uh, I didn't cross over with them a lot, but I don't know if we crossed paths there or not. Okay. Well, anyway, small world, because that's literally a few episodes right. ago. He, we were sitting in the same chairs and he was right. talking about G Capital. Yep. So, so the, but, but that, that, Stint of my career gave me a, a good intro into non-recourse lending, which is virtually all I do now. And understanding the importance of it, understanding the different nuances of, of underwriting it, understanding that you don't have a full personal guarantee behind it. So no. really we're leaning on the operations of the real estate, the location, the quality of construction, the quality of the sponsor, even though they're not personally guaranteeing it. Right, we want to make sure we're, we're lending to experienced sponsors who are very hands-on. And, uh, you know, know their markets and properties in and out. So that was sort of the tail end of my career. And, and GE eventually sold my, uh, sold my business. And I bumped around a little bit until I ended up at CBRE in 2014. And the reason I ended up at CBRE is because of my network that I built throughout my career, really at LaSalle Bank and, and GE Capital, ended up at CBRE. CBRE knew they were getting into the uh, Freddie Mac small balance loan program. Once it launched, it hadn't launched yet, but they started building out a, a origination sales force across the country. And, and that brought me to, to CBRE in 2014. Nice. You know, one thing interesting here in your story, and I've told people this where I, you had quit, you know, you're working at LaSalle to do something else, but you were able to, you can always, I say, go back to what you were doing. Right. You could get a different job. Maybe LaSalle, they'll go, well, he, he quit or right. maybe we'll have him back. Maybe not, but you could go work at another lender. Right. And I tell people that all the time where I had quit my job to do deals on my own. And I always told people like, I feel like I could just go back and get a similar job. If this like didn't work out, it's not like this is the, it, it hopefully is permanent and everything. Yeah. Gets, but if, if it's not, you can just go back. I could just feel like I could just go get another You're right. job as a developer again. And, You're right. Uh, I took a chance as a 20, let's see at 1999, a 24 year old, chasing a bigger salary and not really knowing much as a kid, but I chased a bigger salary, but quickly realized I was traveling like crazy, never home, working very long hours. Um, and it just wasn't for me. And that's okay. Right. Yeah. Because I took the chance and you're right. I had the experience of a solid credit training behind me, a solid underwriting background. At LaSalle started getting into deal or originations a little bit, and, and it brought me back to, to GE Capital. Certainly part of the story and, and I'm glad I did it, but it's uh it's a good lesson that you take the chance and you can go back. And that's, I always, always say, this is interesting to be talking to someone that, that exactly right. that happened. And then, and then even to where another thing that I tell people, it's interesting to mention the salary thing is if you, and I did something similar where I switched jobs to a different real estate developer because they were paying way more. But the prior one, I actually was learning a lot more. Now at my age, 
I wish I'd have stayed at the first place because I would have learned more that would right. be worth more money now than the salary bump. But, you know, it was like I was my second year right. out in the workforce and they were raising, I was getting like a, like an 80% pay raise. So right. you, you like can't turn it down. But now like that, you know, that, that kind of money, I'd rather just have the lessons from the other place. Right. And I, I switched from a multifamily developer to a retail developer. I, it is nice. I learned as much about commercial property and then I bought some of that, but it was, it was helpful. But the, the prior place. It was all multifamily development, which right. now that's where which is only multifamily. Do. Then t- it's I say that too. That's interesting. These are you're seeing similar things. It's nice to share that. Yeah. The- hey, young people can take a chance every now and then, and we were we were young, yeah. maybe a little less experienced back then, and I think we both proved you can go back to to something that's a better fit for you. And then that worked out great timing wise. Where then it's because the when did the Fannie and Freddie small balance programs that's, start? So we my boss came over to CBRE in 2013, I believe. And they they knew at that time when he came over that we were working towards being a part of the Freddie Mac Small Balance Loan Program. I think its genesis was 2012, 2013. Still okay. not officially launched yet though. I came over in July, late June, July of 2014. And we were closer, but Freddie Mac still had not launched the business. I think there was a lot going on in the planning yeah. stages in late in mid 2014. Freddie Mac officially launched late in 14, probably third quarter. For, oh, 14. Really? This week, because Steve brought us this, he's like, "This is kind of a new." What month was that? Do you think? I'd have to go back and look, but I, my from memory, it would have been second half of 14 because we yeah. bought a deal in July 2014 with a bank loan, and then. Kind of after that closed, the next thing we did was we refied two of the deals with right. this new program. And I, for at least for for Steve Kunder, I was he made it sound like I was the first person to try it. Right, like, your, sounds like you were one out, of the originals. Yeah, you can like follow the details. Like this would be good to try. And then they're they're saying like the loan amounts were being quoted are more than we paid. You know, it's because right. we it's not part of the program. That's just because we you added value the rents a lot. We we found deals where the rents were just way below market. Right, but that. I always wondered when did this thing actually start? I didn't I think know if it, I was the it, first for Steve or this is like right. really the first. It's It was certainly the second half of, uh, of 14 and I think it was close to the third quarter of 14. CBRE really started heavily originating early in 2015. You know, once we started, it just, it just continued to grow. And there's been little hiccups along the way, you know, a pause here and there for whatever reason. Obviously, the the most recent and obvious one was a, a, a slowdown during the beginning of the COVID virus, where really was just a temporary slowdown and the right thing to do. Freddie Mac figured out we have to stay in the market, but we've got to figure out how to do it safely and securely. That was a, a brief shutdown. And there's been one or two of those since they launched in 2014, 2015. But it's been a pretty steady climb yeah. since then, as you know. That's interesting. I should, I could go pull up the computer to see the exact months if we want, but later this, but I have everything saved down. Well, let's, let's do that. Yeah. I think that, I mean, it was after, it was for sure, for sure late 2014, but then the sort of kind of the program genesis was there was a need for loans to say at that time, 5 million and under just a streamlined process, keep the origination costs at like a streamlined amount. Cause I, I guess prior, if you had a smaller deal, let's call it, they, I was being quoted as a fanny, like the options where you can do the, whatever the program was called, where it's a 3 million or less loan amount. And right. then there was some sort of cutoff at 3 million. That was in 2012, what people would talk about. Right. Then if really that was the, the point of the program was we want to, well, that needed. Yeah. I think, I, I think Freddie Mac obviously was an established 
multifamily lender at that point yeah, when it course. launched in 2014, but but probably a majority of their loans that they were originating were larger properties, larger loan amounts. And really what wasn't getting addressed were owners of five to 50 unit properties that maintained yeah. safe, affordable properties for the workforce, which is, you know, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae's mission to help provide affordable housing for the workforce throughout the country. But I think they realized that th those smaller properties where majority of the workforce was living yeah. not being addressed. They, they put an emphasis on that and uh, obviously took some time to get the program in place and together. But I think they did a very good job doing it. And the programs changed a little bit here and there, as you know, with their requirements, but the amount of affordable units they've financed across the country since the beginning is amazing. You know, it's, it's, we see those numbers every year and they have a mission to finance affordable units and they, they meet it and blow it out of the water every year. They're and, doing what they intended to. And by affordable, that could be like section 42 housing or just rents that are lower, let's market rate. Yes. And units. really when we say affordable, I mean, it doesn't, there doesn't have to be any section eight involved with it. It's just a, a, a rental rate that is, that qualifies as affordable in the market you're in. That's, the program it's, it's on all like multifamily product types really like i i don't want people to think oh this is for affordable how you know this, you're right this is for like market rate housing we're all just day. full market rate and we're not at rates that were deemed affordable yes. in the county either yes now in the small balance program we finance market rate housing we finance properties with with voucher-based section 8 tenants or other subsidies or not-for-profits that are providing voucher-based type transactions. When you get into a, a, a property with a deed restriction, that's, that's got a project-based contract yeah. on it. That doesn't fit great in the small balance world right. for the agencies, but they have their affordable programs, yeah. which is where that fits well into. Um, they cover all those property types and, and it certainly does not have to have a, an affordable component to qualify for Freddie Mac small balance program, although a vast majority of them do. And, and that's sort of the part that matches with yeah. their mission. And because where they really are with the goal of having just more affordable housing and they're, they're creating a real, real great debt source for, especially like say, not in the major markets. If you have, if you're in rural Wisconsin or just right. wherever there's, maybe there's like a few banks that cover that, but then this is a program sort of nationwide Fannie, yeah. Fannie small banks will basically land anywhere. Exactly. So, and, if, and, that, and that's a very good point. I mean, if we're in a tertiary small market, we have a, a solid experienced landlord, that maintains his property, maintains a safe community for his tenants and offers affordable rents. If historically that landlord's been struggling to find financing for this property to keep it going, this, this product that was launched in 2014 has, has really filled a gap for that, that, that investor. And that's exactly the type of, of client that Freddie Mac likes to lend to. Then maybe let's dive into the actual program then. And I guess kind of first thing everyone wants to talk about is rates. Yep. But rates change, then I think probably the, I would say the best way to describe the rates is they are going to be at least as competitive as the bank you would maybe use. And then oftentimes slightly lower. Right. And then from, from there, there's a million options on how you can, or maybe not a million, but a lot of options on how you can set up your loan with right. different fixed rate terms. You can pick fixed rate to adjustable interest yep. only terms five different quite a few different we printed out the sheet here but a bunch of different prepay structures right you can go full-term interest only right uh, lower ltv then 
I think let's just dive into the program wherever you want to start. And right. And I'll, I'll start with that rate conversation. I mean, me and you and I see, see rates all the time. I, I put our rates right on par with the most competitive rates, depending on the lending source across the country. I mean, banks, we're right there with them all the time. These rates are competitive for everyone, but they have extra incentives for properties that qualify as affordable. So, and again, this is just looking at a rent roll and what the current rent are compared to what's affordable in the market. It doesn't have to be a Section 8 rent. It's just a market right. rent. But as you get affordable rents in place, then all of a sudden they're offering interest rate discounts to make them more competitive. And what's um, like the range of discounts I'm going to be talking about? Yeah, those go really anywhere from 15 basis points all the way to, to 50 basis points, wow. depending on the level of affordability and depending on the market. And the way they look at that, this could be a market rate deal and just they take the... There's a, are they looking up that Fannie average rent schedule or what are they looking at? So there's an affordability test for both. And, and I think what they're looking at is, is this affordable for someone at this location that makes 80% of the area median income? Is this rent on the rent roll affordable for someone that makes 60% of the area median, in, median income? And, and if it is, like there's different levels. Yeah. If, if half of the units are affordable to someone making 80%, we get a, a level one discount. If more than 80% of the units are affordable, we go to a level two discount. And then if, if we're in the very low income category where it's affordable to someone making 60%, even um, then we even get more discounts. Okay, nice. It, it's all very property specific. We take that exact rent roll, we put it against an affordability test, and depending on the level of affordability that that's calculated, interest rate discounts are available and they're pretty meaningful, pretty meaningful. So that's the first first point on on, on the program is... I put our interest rates up against any uh, any lending institution's interest rates. We're always right there. And in fact, more competitive. Many actually, when you were describing that, I was thinking what when there weren't actually a lot of times where if you're, I'm getting a competing quote where it was, there were just a, a few moments in time where if they wanted to, Fannie or Freddie wanted to slow down production where then, then I did a bank loan. But really it's, they've, they've been right more competitive if that's what you're comparing it with. I think that's the best comparison because sure you could get a, lower rate life company loan or something, but we're talking about LTVs that are not right comparable where actually maybe that's the next best. Place. No, that's Let's a good one. But you bring up a good point. I mean, we not to say a bank's not going to drop their rates and win business if they have a client that they want to keep in-house. It happens, obviously. But if we're talking apples to apples, I put our rates up against anyone's. LTV-wise, in standard and top markets, Freddie Mac is routinely 80% on acquisitions. And frankly, 80% on refinances right now. That that cash out refinance LTV dipped a little bit during the, the pandemic yeah. period, but we're back up to 80%. That doesn't mean on a cash out refinance, every loan will qualify for 80%. I mean, we really need to see a value add story. If we're going to do a cash out refinance at 80%, we need to be dealing with an experienced sponsor. We need to have a quality asset. We need to have a safe asset. That's the program parameters though. Acquisitions and refinance and top and standard 80%. And then acquisitions in small and very small markets were at 75% loan to value. And then refinances in those markets were going to be at, at 70%. Okay. In top markets right now, minimum underwritten debt service coverage at 1.2 times for acquisitions. That bumps up if it's a cash out refinance. They want a little extra cushion of, of debt service coverage in there up to 1.25 times. This is in top markets. Top markets. So a little safer for a cash out yeah. refinance, which makes sense. And then acquisitions and standard 125 underwritten debt service coverage, and then cash out refinances would bump up to 130. And a lot of, let's say in the area you work in the Midwest, then I don't think the 
the deck cover doesn't isn't going to often come into play then where it's because the cap rates are I should take that back. Depends what city. Where if you're in some of these Madison or Minneapolis, you'd be for sure hitting it or a really nice deal in right Chicago. It just sort of depends on the market. I mean, a low cap rate environment, we're going to bump up against the underwritten debt service coverage before we bump up against the LTV constraint. Right. But in a good solid market with affordable rents, we're probably hitting we're probably hitting LTV before we're hitting that debt service coverage yeah. metric. It really depends. I mean, I see just as many uh, of both. We would see a lot of solid market low cap rate deals where where we hit that debt service coverage constraint first. And the way, just if someone hasn't heard of a debt service coverage ratio. That would be our underwritten NOI, underwritten net operating income, to your annual amortizing debt service coverage. And when we say underwritten NOI, it may not be the NOI on your P&L. We're baking in vacancy factors. We're baking in market expenses and comparing them to actual expenses per an appraiser's guidance. But 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 that's something we have to pay attention to, and we t- we'll talk a little bit about sort of what I, what do I hit first, the LTV constraint or the debt service coverage constraint. Yeah. It really it really is both. Depends on the market we're in. If it's a low cap rate market, we're hitting that debt service constraint all the time. And right. if it's a a higher cap rate market, maybe a more a, a affordable a more affordable rent roll with lower interest rate. I'm going to hit the debt, the, excuse me, the, the LTV constraint more so. Right. And one thing that I can't stress enough with this program, there's so many different nuances to it. Yes. When you say the underwritten NOI, I mean, we've probably talked for, I mean, just countless hours about how this thing's going to be underwritten or right. what would they accept for right. repairs and maintenance and where does trash go? Cause right. actually that goes in repairs and maintenance, which is funny to me, but that right. it's a contract service, but it's repairs for that. There's so much nuance that I can't stress enough. If you're going to do a loan like this to work with someone like you, where that's all you do. Right. Cause if you come in through maybe a different intermediary who does these once in a while, they don't, they don't realize all the different things or they're not talking to the, the main point of contact at Freddie basically every day right. about a loan. And then you can really help advise people on what, what this NOI is going to look like once Vanya Freddie does her thing to it. Right. And I have a, an army behind me helping me with those things in our CBRE underwriters. Freddie Mac underwriters are great. And then we have enough appraisal contacts where we can talk to appraisers about where they're going to peg taxes. If our underwritten repairs and maintenance are at 800 a unit for this 12 unit property, is that realistic? Is that market or am I too low there? That really almost needs to be done on these deals yeah. to set a realistic expectation of where your loan is going to end up at in terms of a loan amount. And then on the, along with that, where is your interest rate going to end up? Because we're priced based on where our debt service coverage is, where our LTV ends up. Really, the bulk of that underwriting work should be fleshed out before an application signed just to set everyone's expectations right. appropriately. But you're right. You and I have had countless hours of conversations on those things and it's the right thing to do so no one's surprised there's always going to be a surprise here and there but you got to do as much homework on the front end as possible to make sure those surprises are limited right but i can't stress enough like you like you some you got to find someone for this that actually knows how these right things will work how how are they going to look at the expenses and just because otherwise if you you could send in something that's gonna they're gonna make a ton of changes to it when they when they get it and then you'll be surprised because you're three weeks into the process where you need to work with someone on the front end, make sure it's sized and set up the way you want right. you know, to proceed instead of just think, okay, I'll just 
Yes. Instead of your 800 home run at 200, they'll right. say, okay, but if you don't do these often, you might say, it seems fine. That's how you're doing it. And right. then they don't, they might not know, no, that's going to get changed. You're exactly or right. In, in some things, they'll maybe take less than you were thinking as an expense. It depends. It's just, it's really just, you got to know what they're, what they're doing. That's, and I'd say it's, it's every line item on a PL on the expense side, especially, right? You have to understand where an appraiser thinks taxes will be going forward. Insurance is pretty easy because that's going to be the final insurance right. quote. That number is what it is. Repairs and maintenance. Are you running this more efficiently than the market? Well, we might have to bump up those assumptions a little bit. You're exactly right. Working on the front end to make sure you're sort of sizing that appropriately is is everything. That's been a big thing we've spent a lot of time on yep. with you guys. But that's that's because on the, let's say, I think one thing maybe then this kind of ties in is the difference in the approval process and how that works between Fannie and yeah. Freddie. Because then that's why I was saying you're going to find out a surprise at the end. Maybe right. let's, let's get into yeah, that. Usually we come to those surprises much before we're submitting for approval through receiving a completed appraisal and working with our underwriting teams internally. To start with Freddie Mac's approval process, many times I'm pre-screening deals with Freddie Mac for whatever reason. If there's an exception we need to waiver on, or if there, if it's it's a deal that just is a little sort of different than the norm, it's always good to get in front of my counterparts at Freddie Mac just to make sure we're flushing out any issues that may come up. We get an application out and executed. It comes in. We order third-party reports appraisal, physical risk report, and and then our underwriting team completes a full underwriting and, and prepares it to submit for approval to CBRE, then Freddie Mac. That process really is once an application signed in Freddie's program, they have the strong benefit of holding the interest rate, as you know, but we have a timeline by which we have to submit for approval to hold that interest rate, and that's 35 business days. Yep. And then one thing too, what I think is important to know, the difference with Fannie and Freddie's approval process where, and correct me if I'm wrong on the Fannie small balance, but on Fannie conventional, that it's fully delegated to the yep. uh, originator. Then that's why they call it, it's a DOS program, yep. delegated underwriter servicer. Then that approval is going to come really from CBRE. If you're doing a Fannie right. conventional, is the same in the small balance? Yep. No, it is. Freddie Mac, we're finishing our underwriting, submitting for approval. And then Freddie Mac's small balance team does their finishing touches on underwriting and then physically submits for approval to their team and then gets back to us with a commitment letter and a, a notification of approval. Fannie Mae, we're dedicated. You're right. Our, our team at CBRE approves these. And once they do, we're off and running, issuing a commitment letter and moving into closing. I will say on the Fannie Mae side, things come up as well that are out of the norm for their credit box. Right. What we do in that instance is we go early for a, a formal quote to Fannie Mae and there's underwriting that goes on on the front end on that, submit a, a, a pricing quote request, get a quote back with the conditions that we've spelled out that are different than their normal underwriting. And as long as nothing else changes, our, our dedicated team at CBRE can approve that in-house. That speeds up that approval process a little right. bit. You're exactly and right. And that's that's why, and I sort of regretted using the word surprise at the end when I said that, but with the with the Freddie program, but that what I what I meant by that was Freddie, they approve it. It's not it's not delegated to right. CB or another intermediary. So then right. that's why it's super important to work with someone who knows what they're doing on the front end. Yep. Because if they if they don't and they throw it into Freddie, yeah, you wait, you know, it takes a few weeks to get it submitted, then you're waiting two, three weeks to hear back from 
credit. Meanwhile, like the clock's ticking. Let's say it's a deal you're buying, you're running out of time to close. And then they, you find out, oh, wait, actually they do taxes differently or right. whatever. It's 5% vacancy and you were thinking it's three. And then that's, that to me is a huge difference, you know, then that's why working with you guys has been great because you have such a good understanding of the program. Right. We've had no surprises once Freddie decides what to do. Whereas with Fannie, we're sort of, we already kind of are talking to who would approve it. Obviously CB is a big firm. They have things they need themselves to do a Fannie loan. But exactly. that that's what I meant by that. And then that to me is like a, huge difference with the program it is so you got to work with the right person on the it is yeah no I, I agree with you and and you know the more work on on both these programs that you do up front just to make sure any sort of nuances of the underwriting are flushed out is ultra important and that that's obvious that's really with any deal across any property type right but there are nuances to both programs where the approval process is different the rate lock is different yeah right to talk about rate lock a little bit I mentioned Freddie Mac will hold your rate when you sign an application as long as you submit for approval in time. Fannie Mae, you have to get to approval and commitment letter and then get some legal clearance before you can rate lock. And that process moves quicker though. So both are both are good, but they're a little different, right? We don't have to wait 45, 50 days to get a commitment letter to rate lock in the Fannie program. It's going to be much quicker than that, but it is a little different than the way Freddie Mac does it. And to throw some days on that, then like with Freddie, you're, I guess I always thought it was rate locking at application, but really they're holding the rate. There's not, a, it is a confusing sort of terminology instrument being executed until you're yes. further down with the commitment, but they, they hold your rate. That's a huge appeal where, especially you're buying a deal maybe it's, it makes what you want, but not much more the property. And then to not have any risk at that point with the interest rate, that's a huge plus in my mind. It is, absolutely. And a lot can happen in 30 days. I mean, we've you know we seen it over the past five years since this program started, six years. A lot can happen. Having the benefit of locking in a rate that's a rate that works for you and works for your property is huge. Uh, on the flip side, you know, moving quickly through Fanny's program to get to a point where you can rate lock as quickly as possible is is huge too. It keeps everyone motivated to to move yeah. quickly. And I will say most of the time, I mean, the rate is sort of within expectation of, of when we started, but things happen. That's not always the case. Because how many days, let's say after application, is this like a rough rate yeah, on the Fannie program? Yeah. I would say we should be in a position to lock the rate within 30 days. Okay. You know, and that's where we're motivated. We get third parties appraisal and pr physical risk report ordered right away. A sponsor, you, the borrower, is motivated to get me all the information we need from, from underwriting right away. Our underwriting team goes through all that information, and then we get to a point where we're going to loan committee. That really should be able to, to be done in 30 days. I will say now maybe appraisers are busy that their normal two, two and a half week turns are turning into three, three and a half weeks, yeah. but that's going to sort of normalize. I would say our experience is sort of a 30 day rate lock in that which that is program. that's fast then because to is, get all is. those reports back, give the borrower everything is. they need to do, and then review it all. And that's that's, that's all. everyone's that's motivated. Quick. Everyone's motivated. It's quick uh, when that happens. So, but it should be able to be done. Great. Then that's sort of that's the approval process. Let's say, but now let's let's talk about what are they looking for 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 sponsorship then. Good question. Both programs really do value experience. You know, our typical or not our typical, our target sort of ideal sponsor has owned multifamily in the market for a period of time. You know, if I've got a sponsor that owns 10 buildings in the market for 10 years and knows the market in and out is a hands-on sponsor, that's a, 
short conversation on sponsorship. Of course, there's personal financial metrics we have to meet as well, which we can talk about. But if we've got a, a hands-on sponsor that has long-term experience and their product, their inventory of multifamily properties that they own, show it, we'd be all over them as, as sponsors that are a great fit for the program. And then let's say without a, without any waiver or special exception, what would be, because the example you gave, that was actually a pretty high bar, 10 properties for 10 years. So oh, I agree. What would be the sort of a, a minimum in your mind without needing a waiver? Yes. So Freddie Mac's very specific on this. If we, if we have three multifamily properties under ownership, they, uh, they meet the sponsorship hurdle. But for how long? There, I, I don't believe there's a time frame okay. on three. The alternative is one, at least one multifamily property for five years. Got so it. there's either or. If you have one multifamily property for either five years or three total, then you meet, you technically meet their sponsorship requirement. And they want the property that you currently own, the one to three, to be to be in the market that you're going to do Good the question. loan or where you live. What's what Good question. There? No. It doesn't matter. Technically, okay. the spot, the exception, as as I recall, it says ownership of three multifamily properties or one for five years. That's not to say if they've owned one for five years in, you know, New Mexico that and we check the box for sponsorship per the exception guidelines and they want to buy a, a property in Tacoma, Washington, that it's an automatic. Yes, that might be a different that might be different, though. We're now we're out of market yes. on a deal there. The ideal is that they own those properties in the market that we're looking at or have owned some of those properties in the market we're looking at. But that is not a that's not technically how it reads. OK, but that would be a deal that I would pre-screen. Certainly, if 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 we were getting into a deal that's a new market for the sponsor, but they own properties elsewhere. Right. So then not a program for someone's first deal or their first deal in a new market. But once you have your one to three deals under your belt, yeah. this is a great option. No, no doubt about it. And I, and let me put it a, a couple different ways. There, there sometimes are reasons to ask to do a deal. If, you know, this would be a waiver, an exception waiver. If a sponsor doesn't meet that criteria, for example, let's say we have a sponsor that for, you know, the last five years has owned three, four flats in a market and clearly running rental property, doing a good job with them. The properties show well, the properties are performing well, occupancy's there. One to four is looked differently. One to four units ownership right. is looked differently than five or more units, which is our traditional multifamily. But that's a deal where we ask that that's why you, there's a waiver process. We ask that we ask for that exception waiver yeah. because they've shown experience in the market, they're buying, say, a six unit right in between two of their four unit properties, there's going to be, you know, if the story's good, there's going to be a, a reason to ask that question for the waiver. And a lot of times, Freddie Mac's very reasonable on that. And that the, I guess we skipped over it, the program, small balance program is for five units and more. Five units well. or more only. And that that's, that's yep. there's no questions about that. The, yeah. the discussion stops if it's not five units or more. Which we might have skipped over that, or at least I for sure. No, that, we did. And then what's, is there a minimum loan amount too? Minimum about? loan amounts. And frankly, it's become a very hard minimum of $1 million loan amounts and up. I will say if we have a portfolio of three, four, five loans coming in at one time, and there's a $900,000 loan request as part of that portfolio, I'm always going to ask. That's another one where it's worth asking that question. If it's an experienced sponsor, it's someone we want to do business with. The properties look good. The financials look good. Occupancy's there. 
there's a reason to ask to do one sub $1 million loan, but I would consider the program a very hard minimum of $1 million. Got it. One to either six or seven and a half million loan amount. That's right. And five plus units. Five plus units. Yep. Got it. Absolutely. And then are there waivers if you're slightly over the, the max? That one is, has been a pretty hard and fast rule. And I think the right answer is no, it just should move to the conventional program. Okay. Because Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae obviously do a lot of deals above right. seven and a half or six million in, in, in Fannie Mae's case. Those really belong in the conventional space. I don't want to say it's never been done before, but I don't think it's, I've never done it and I don't think it happens very often. I would need to go back and check. We did some loan that was, I think, five million forty thousand, and we needed some sort of, we needed two waivers. And I think one of them was, we were over. The deal size. That was one that was yeah. five cap. But I don't remember if that's, if that was to be in the small balance program or some sort of like fee break right. on this conventional, right. this is in 2014. So then this is where everything was real early. I think maybe we were getting a waiver on something else, but I should go check that one. Yeah. Out. And the program has evolved deal size on the maximum was, uh, was more of a gray area at the beginning. And frankly, the minimum too, because we did $900,000 one-off deals at the beginning, but we were doing 80% deals in small and very small markets at the beginning. And that just doesn't happen anymore. Right. Early on, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened more. I just really don't see it happening at all anymore. And then, then and I always, for someone's first deal anyways, they should just use their local bank. Like that, they they know you. It's, it's like that's a much easier loan to get. It's going to be an easy execution. It's your first deal. You should focus on making sure you got the deal yeah. set up the way you want. And then, or this is this is a great product though. Once you, you've had that property for a few years, you want a permanent loan on it. Right. You know, and now you have the experience, or maybe you're up to three properties or you've had the one for five and this is a great, yeah, and that, great that, option. I think that's the way that sort of Freddie Mac looks at it as well is they may say no to a first time buyer. That's not because they don't like the property or they don't think the sponsor can handle it, but their program as a non-recourse program requires a, a, a comfort level from an under underwriting standpoint that I guess has to be earned if you will. Right. right? And you know, that's, we're partners with a lot of banks. We know banks very well that sort of come in, finance buyers, provide flexibility, provide value, add capital. And then, you know, in turn, that sponsor then builds a credibility, gets the property stabilized, and then comes to an agency small balance loan for a, a sort of stabilized non-recourse option. That happens all the time. Right. But I agree with you to build that sort of credibility and show you know, the experience, a, a bank is a, a very appropriate option for, for some, someone getting into the business. Let's talk about the sponsorship financial requirements, yep. net worth, liquidity, what are we? That's pretty simple. It's If we just want to check the box, you're looking for the sponsorship group to have a net worth equal to the loan amount we're requesting, and then liquidity equal to nine months worth of amortizing loan payments on the loan we're requesting. The liquidity one, the down payment is not factored in. Well, it actually is, but like we have to show that post-closing liquidity would be there, right? If there's several partners that are in on a deal and let's say only one or two partners are, are going to be over 25% and managers on the uh, property, on the borrowing entity, and therefore are going to sign our loan documents, sign the, the carve out non-recourse guarantees, we would want to see that those two sponsors post-closing would have nine months worth of of amortizing loan payments combined. 
Right. Not individually, but combined. So and then we just get the story like, hey, the down payment's a million dollars. 400000 is coming from our two sponsors. Their investors are bringing 600000 Here's what they're going to have after closing. Right. Pretty simple test. I will say the while that's sort of a box check, it's ideal if you're asking for a million dollar deal, not to have an exact million dollar net worth, to have a little buffer there is great. That would be looked at, but, but those are the metrics. Then what about, then we got into the 25% control thing, then who, who's defined as a sponsorship? We have to underwrite any individual or entity with 25% or more ownership, along with any individual or entity with management authority within the borrowing entity. If you're a 10% owner, but you're the sole manager of the borrowing entity, you're going to be fully under- underwritten. Who has to sign the carve-out guarantees? Ideally, any en- entity or individual with 25% or more ownership or management authority on the borrowing entity. There are certain cases where we get deals where, say we have a 40% owner who really is a limited partner uh, that does not want to sign out on those carve-out guarantees. As long as we know that up front, and our carve-out guarantor are signing and meet all of our financial requirements, that can get done. Anyone with management authority in the borrowing entity, though, is going to have to sign a carve-out guarantee. Right. Or if someone on the on those managers can just carry the whole thing, then they don't look to that, the yes. 25%. Yes. More yes. More. If you have a 30% owner who really is limited with no management authority and is totally against signing it, won't do it, and we have you know, another sponsor that meets what we need, has the experience and, and has all the management authority, we're going to be fine getting that done. That's the case with us, right? At this point, we're, we carry the financial requirements, the experience, the everything. And we did, we're, that's what we're yep. doing. So that was the case. But then let's, then for non-recourse, let's get to talk about that some. But then this, this program, when we say non-recourse, there's no, except for a few instances, there's not a personal repayment guarantee that you're making. There's there's not a full personal guarantee. Your base recourse in these deals, and this would be most deals. Again, I've done a, a couple one-off deals where we, for what, whatever reason, needed a little recourse, personal recourse. That is very much not the norm. In most of these deals, your base recourse, you individually as, as carve-out guarantors and the borrowing entity has a base recourse of zero. But there's always carve-outs to the most obvious ones are uh, fraud. Fraud's committed and there's a loss to the lender because of that. The individuals that sign those guarantees are going to be personally responsible for that. Property negligence, losses because taxes aren't paid or insurance isn't paid, things of that nature. You're mishandling an insurance claim. I think yes. And that's and the reason they call that a carve-out then. I mean, really the term came from like, then those are things that are carved out of this non-recourse right. section saying you, there's no personal repayment obligation except if you do this and this and this right. and these 10 things basically that are i mean easy not to do kind of but you yes. know that it'll it'll happen or you could get in you something to be aware of where these are these it's a great program where then let's say you have 10 buildings and you've been using just only bank financing and doing full recourse you kind of put these to bed where except for these carve outs you're you're not you're not on the hook for repayment right obviously no one goes in with the plan of losing a property but it's right you know you really can sleep well at night we got done 24 of these. We cleaned right. it up before we started. You know, I, no, it's definitely a benefit to the lender. And a lot of, a lot of lenders are exclusive or excuse me. It's a benefit to the borrower. A lot of borrowers are exclusive non-recourse borrowers and they see big value in it. We do too, but there are carve outs associated with that. And you know, it's just something to be mindful of. Freddie Mac does. I get the question a lot. Like, why am I signing a guarantee? 
Oh. Freddie Mac works with a, a, a single counsel. There's always an outside third party lawyer on these deals to help close them. And I lean on those lawyers quite a bit to sort of walk borrowers through sort of the loan documents and where it shows you that a base recourse is zero, but there are carve outs to that. So we can explain that when the question comes up, but you know, it's right. a reality that there is a guarantee that's signed in these deals, but it's a carve out guarantee. Issue. Right. And then this is not, I'm sure the legal term, but then that guarantee doesn't activate until you, if you, until, unless you did something. Right. Then that, because I've, I've, we've had people ask that. Yep. Too, or if it's, no, I do a bunch of these. Yes. We're looking at it. Me and you can't answer it right now, but I can make one quick phone call. And then the attorney right. I work with quite a bit can answer it very easily. Uh, he responds <laughs> in like two minutes. So right. That was good, good, good choice there. So great. I think that's probably enough on the non-recourse piece. I mean, that's a big differentiator. And then especially when you have, if you're going to end up being a borrower, we have a many properties right. to other lenders. If you had all recourse loans to start looking at you, be a little worried. Maybe if you have every property is like full recourse, right. then what I've liked about the program, obviously it's non-recourse on that property, but then collectively your, your financial statement, it's, it looks a lot cleaner if you have a bunch of non-recourse deals and then maybe just the recourse ones are reserved for the deals that are just kind of transitioning. It's a value add deal right. or we're doing something to it. That's, I think that's a real important piece to to talk about. I think that was, that was great. Let's get into then the flexibility. There's a lot of different options. We printed out the, the sheet of all the options here, but it's more than just like a lot of programs. I'd say it's a sort of, here's your standard five or seven year option or yeah. maybe a three and go, but this there's a, just a, a lot of different things that you can choose from. And we've been able to tailor it to the deals we've done. And actually with this program, I kind of learned, I started thinking about the loans differently where I started thinking, especially if it's a deal we're acquiring, I started thinking about the prepay first, actually, <laughs> yeah. where I've now assumed enough loans from people who did a full yield maintenance loan on a deal. They weren't going to, they, they like were the developer. They're not right. going to hold it forever, but then right. they went and they put a yield maintenance loan on that cost. Two million bucks to break, and then they got to sell it as an assumption deal. Right. That's good for us. We can do the paperwork and handle all that, but then that limits the buyer pool. Right. So one couple deals that I did that we did together, we were acquiring property. We knew there was value add to it. We picked the most flexible prepay. Right. And if you look at the options that Freddie Mac specifically offers on the small balance program, they know exactly who they're competing against in this market. Banks give you flexibility for these small loans. And then they also knew that they could give you the best of both worlds with longer term, true permanent financing with more strict repayment, but better interest rates. Freddie Mac's program specifically offers five, seven, and 10 year fixed rate balloon loans. They also have hybrid prop products, which are, are fixed to floating. Their hybrids are five, seven, 10, the same fixed rate periods, but then after the fixed rate period, convert to a floating rate. Within each of these six products that I mentioned, they have three prepayment options. In fact, the five-year has four prepayment options, as you know. The lowest interest rates are going to come with yield maintenance. Yield maintenance is a very common non-recourse securitized loan prepayment penalty, very market-driven, but can be very penalizing, as you know. Borrowers that are getting into that lowest rate product should be pretty certain that they're going to hold the loan for or the property for that ex entire fixed rate period, in most cases. Freddie Mac also offers 
a couple nice flexible options with step down prepays. Their basic step down on a 10 year product is 5544332211. Five percent of the loan amount at the time you're paying off for the first two years, shifting to four percent in years three and four, and on until you get to years nine and ten when it's one percent. Nice. On the fixed rate product, which is a balloon loan. The last 90 days, there's no prepayment penalty. That gives you time at the end of your fixed rate to refinance, sell, pay off the loan entirely, do whatever you want. They know at the end of those fixed rate balloon loans that you need some time to figure out what to do next. Hopefully it's a refinance with them, but it doesn't have to be. And when I say them, I mean us. In the hybrid loans, that's a little different though. Your prepayment penalty is in place for the entire fixed rate period. And then during the floating rate period, it shifts to 1%. On the five-year hybrid with yield maintenance, you would have five years of yield maintenance prepay, and then you'd have a 15-year floating rate loan term, during which time the prepayment penalty is 1%. Now, that prepayment penalty can be waived, and it's in the loan documents. If you sell the property on an arm's length transaction, they'll waive that 1% prepayment penalty. Or if you refinance on a Freddie Mac product, preferably with CBRE, (laughs) then that 1% would get waived as well. But hybrid's a nice product to build in flexibility. And all the hybrids, they go out for 20 years. Then if you did the 10-year, if there's a 10-year floating rate period after. And what I've really liked about the the the, the option, the hybrid, is a lot of the the 2008 and 9 crisis, a lot of the companies that went out of business or had the had all the biggest problems. They were they had their loans with a hard maturity date, right? Two thousand eight, two thousand nine, yes. and there's no lenders out there. For You're that. exactly right. And and I have one client that from the beginning said I will never do a balloon loan because they've been caught over their long career a couple times. I mean, in recent history, you and I can imagine if you had a balloon coming due March of 2020. Yeah. I mean. It figured itself out in a couple months, but you just don't want to be caught that way. That hybrid really is a, a product that people value for the flexibility, and it's a nice product to have a, an option with. Download our 100-plus page passive investing guidebook today. Accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities as well by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. Now back to the show. And the actual rate in the floating rate period is not bad. It's like a fair spread. Absolutely. And I think the idea when people get into these is they're not going to float it for the entire floating rate right. period. but in, in case there's no other options out there, you don't have to pay it off. Just keep maintaining your property and keep making your monthly payments and you have that flexibility. And then too, this there's a actual, there's set either deductions to the rate or add-ons to say with the prepay, like yield maintenance on the five-year, it yeah. would be, it's a specific deduction to the rate. Then you can kind of, as the borrower, you know how it works. It's not like a negotiation, like I'm doing a Five-year yield mean. It's how much could I get off by doing yield maintenance? It's on the sheet. It's fifteen yeah. basis points. Yeah. You're doing. Yeah, it's very programmatic in that regard. I mean, if in the, on the five-year, you get a fifteen basis point discount off of the standard rate if you use yield maintenance. On the seven and ten-year products, it would be a twenty basis point discount off the rate. It makes life easy because we don't have to talk about it very long. Let's say they have other step downs and two. Whenever someone says they step down prepay, when they say these numbers in order that's the amount per year like sequentially so right. you go five four three two one that's just the years yes in in order there you know five percent right. year one four percent right. two and i and and let's just mention real quick a product i know you've used that five year with their ultra flex prepay which really competes well with banks 
and is popular if, if for whatever reason, if a sponsor is acquiring a property and they really think rate, rents are low and they can build them up, they have a 31000 product on that five-year, meaning after two years, there's no prepayment penalty. You have ultra flexibility to do whatever you'd like after two years. Sell the property, refinance the property, pull a little cash out to do some CapEx. But that product was specifically built because we know a lot of these small property owners have plans to sort of value add and do something else quickly. And that's a, that's the prepay I use on all those, let's say, second generation turns of that initial money I was talking about, where initially we did probably the standard step down and right. then not really, we, didn't, we were just kind of thinking, let's get a good rate. And we didn't. We didn't know how quickly things were going to move. Right. Then on the next one, we go, wow, we just did that in two years. Let's pay a little more on our, you know, this, this add-on and do the three one zero 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 prepay. But then we're executing these business plans in a year or two. We're going to pay a point or nothing to get out. Right. And then that's what we did. And then it worked out where we, we did, I mean, and that one round of turning the money, I think we did six of them, but then also I did three on my own. And, right. you know, one of them always comes to mind where it was like a, Deal that I was going to renovate out of cash. So we had to explain that up front that that was a right like a exceptionally something to explain to them. But then and then I renovated all the units. I added a unit, and then you're a year later you're refined and you're just paying a point to get out. It's right. a great, really great option. And then that I went with that because I wanted the full leverage. I was buying that deal on my own. I wanted eighty percent LTV if you can get it. And then right. that on a on a deal like that that's not this is the only option if you also want non recourse and you know. It's, so right. it was a great, great execution on those deals. And I sure. think it, the thought that Freddie Mac put into this program when they started it, virtually the prepayment options have not changed. I think that 31000 was added a few years into the program, but clearly they, they were building a, a program to offer flexibility if you wanted it. Right. And you'd pay a little extra to get it, but that's worth it to a lot of people. And that's actually what I was saying to kind of... This is what taught me to think about the exit on those initial loans the most. Cause then if you're going to just have that loan for a year and a half, like the rate, it's obviously important, but it's more important to have that 1% or zero yeah. exit. Whereas if you did a, you're not thinking and you say, oh, I'll do yield maintenance and then rates move a little and it's 20% to break your loan. Well, that's then you like, you need to match up your exit with your, with your business plan. I, I'd love to see that spreadsheet and hear you're in Kunder's conversations on the yeah. analysis there. Well, I mean, that, there's a lot of things to think about. Though. That it's really too was the, you're just matching up your business plan. There's for this, there's not, I'd say we're making more calculations on the perm loan like that where right. this I'm going, I'm going to, I'm going to raise the rents. I'm going to create the value. I just, there's not any spreadsheet actually. I'm just doing yes. the three one zero zero. But then on the perm one, you're like, okay, what are you going to, decent rate difference if you're going to do a five or 10 year, then right. you're really thinking like, what's our, again, what's your business plan and then how you want to set it up. And that's where it's harder to that 10 year. If that. you're going between yield maintenance or a 20 basis point higher rate to get that step down flexibility, but you're going to hold this asset forever and it's a low cap rate market. That 20 basis yeah. points means a lot. It really does. And then the six different options in terms of the fixed rate period in the, or, or fixed the floating and then what about, what's the amortization on these? These are all 30-year amortization. Interest only is an option on every one of these loans. In top and standard markets, as a rule, you can get one year of interest only on a five-year loan, two years on a seven, and then three years on a 10-year loan. And then in small and very small markets, that's no IO on a five-year, one year of interest only on a seven-year, and two years of interest only on a 10-year if you should choose, you yeah. don't have to take the interest only. Of course, a lot of sponsors like it, 
Uh, but it is an option there. And then there's, it's again, everything is so formulaic with this. If you don't want the interest only, then they'll drop your rate a little. Four so. basis points a year, 0.04% for every year you don't use, your rate would go down. Right. And then to the, what you just had said, that's at full leverage then? That's at the 80%. Then if someone, let's say I, I want, I like, I, I don't want to leave you to answer. They also do offer, which a lot of lenders do, full term interest only options. And at six in, in top markets at 65% loan to value, 1.35 times underwritten debt service coverage, you can opt to do a full term interest only. That would mean on your five-year loan, five years of interest only payments. Same with seven, same with 10. We can do it with any product. That's 65%, 135 in top markets. The debt service coverage goes up as you get into smaller markets. Yeah. And then there's a, a rate interest rate add-on. There's interest well. rate adders. And really on that 65%, it's a fun one to run through because you get interest rate discounts for yeah. going from 80 to 70 to 65%. You get debt service coverage discounts from going from 120 to 130. You're at 135. And then there's that four basis point adder every year of interest only that you have to go through. So right. interest only costs a little more, but it's there as an option for someone looking at that cash flow that really wants to to do a lower leverage deal. There's a lot of options. Let's make sure we hit them all because then we just touched on two more. But yeah, different fixed rate and floating rate terms, different interest only, Yep. different prepays. Yep. Maybe and, I'll talk about the pricing breaks for LTV. You get a break at 70%, 65%, and then again at 55%. And then every you get pricing breaks depending on the market you're in for higher debt service coverage. On top markets, you get a break at 130, 140, and 150. And those are, again, very formulaic. We don't even have to negotiate or have a discussion about yeah. them. It just is what it is. The only, and then I guess that should lead into waivers then. the I think that's sort of the standard program, all the different options, a lot of things you can choose from. And then from there, you can request waivers. Right. You know, then what what's sort of possible, and this is just, it's just sort of at their discretion. If they like your deal, let's say, what is possible to ask for? I mean, I've asked for, you know, anything's possible to ask for, for the right deal. There was a specific deal, maybe that was at 70%, but they wanted one year extra of interest only. Historically, I've not been afraid to ask for that. Right now, probably a little harder to get than two, three years ago. You know, I've been in heavy competitive situations on really well-located assets where I needed maybe a little pricing help on the interest rate. I'm never afraid to ask for that. The sponsorship waiver that we talked about, the sponsorship exception waiver, if the story's right and there's a real compelling reason as to why I think this individual is experienced and would be a good fit for our program, never afraid to ask for that. On a rehabbed property, they want to see 90% occupancy for 90 days on every property. They want to see 90% occupancy for 90 days or more. If I've got a newly rehabbed property that stabilizes and say, I'm going to submit for approval in the second month that that's stabilized, I'm not afraid to ask for a, a T2 or a 60 yeah. day stabilization. If there's a reason to ask for that, there's a, of course, it's, it's a pared down list of exceptions on every deal that you have to go through and lean on your underwriting team, your counterparts there to make sure you're meeting everything. But there's a lot of reasons where where it makes sense to ask for waivers, and we do it all the time. I mean, we have a great relationship with the the Freddie Mac team. The leader of production in the North Central is an employee of theirs named Joyce Judah. You've met yeah. her, and I talk to her every day. And 
you know, sometimes she tells me no and sometimes she tells me yes, but it's, right. she's never, she, she doesn't ever ignore my requests. Right. You know, she, she looks hard into them, reviews with underwriting when needed. And, and if it makes sense, she gets behind it. And then it's interesting as you're, ex- you're explaining all this, I would say the, to like, if you invest in our deals, like we are bringing, I guess, a lot of advantages on the, in a lot of aspects of the deal, but also in the debt. Cause I mean, we're, I think we've gone in and done some T1 waivers, which yep. probably not, not normal, meaning like we just, you get the rent roll to where you want the, what you want to use for the NY workup on the loan sizing. And it's like, we got that on the first and we're sending it in on the fifth, you know, yeah. but that's not, not for everyone can do that, but we've done that. And for the right, that's a, a perfect example of here's why, here's why we're asking for a T1 because we did this work. We value added rents are bumping on August 1st and we're going to submit on August 15th for right. approval. And you know, we can sit here and wait for three months, but this makes sense to look at it now. We're never afraid to ask that question. Yeah, and then for the, depending on who the borrower is, we're like, they, we, at this point, like actually all know each other. Right. And then this had, could have been at that time, the 15th loan I did. And, you know, right. where they go, okay, like we get it. And then, right. Or we could just sit here and wait for 80 days and then, then do it. So right. And that, that makes, that makes sense. But it's interesting that I, we've done that. And all those ones are stabilized and we pretty much did that. Just at the oh, it totally, it totally summer. makes sense in certain situations. And, and you bring up a great point and we, we emphasized it earlier, but sponsorship experience is, goes a long way. If I've got an experienced sponsor asking to underwrite to collections for the last two months instead of the last three, they'll strongly consider it for the right reasons. Then would they, there's waivers for the interest rate. Potentially you could ask for a discount. If they, yes, if there's a competitive situation and a compelling reason and a, it's, a, it's an experienced sponsor and it's a great property and we need it, I'm going to ask for it. And then waivers for the, the what month, how many months going back we're sizing the loan. What, what else? Expe- the experience we've month. talked about. If I don't have, like there's a technical ex- exception if you don't have a stabilized trailing 12-month statement. Well, a lot of times oh, right. I don't because yeah, it's value add properties oh. or whatever, you know, and I'm refinancing. Someone can give me a T12, but they didn't fill it until two months right. ago. There's technical exceptions there. There's an exception if you're, this one's harder, but if you're self-managing a property and live a hundred miles or more away. Oh, interesting. That's an exception. I mean, there's probably a list of 20, 25 exceptions that most of them don't come into play. They they do have us review every loan below one point two million dollars now because you're getting close to that one million dollar threshold. Oh, interesting. Just to make sure, like everyone's clear that this is going to be a smaller loan. Most of the time, the answer, if if everything else lines up, is yes. But if it goes below a million dollars, we can't do it, right. which everyone understands. Link loans to talk about those a little bit. We pre-screen every one of those, and that would be one loan on more than one property. There's very specific category. These have to be managed together. They have to be close together. They have to be reported on together with rent rolls and P&Ls. But sometimes there's a reason to do those type of deals. Do they need to be contiguous or? They don't need to be contiguous in the link loan program. A a contiguous property we would just do as a sort of a, a regular loan. That makes sense. In the link program, they have to be within three miles of each other. They all have to be more than five units. They all have to be reported on together. The loan amount has to be $2 million or more on a link loan. But that's another conversation that I'm always having with them early. Vet that deal out early. There's no one's surprised. And and we get sort of the blessing, the early blessing from their underwriting team to move forward with those deals. What do the link loans look like then? Let's say it's a $2.5 million total loan on five properties. That's a 
it's five five hundred thousand dollar loans or it's one two and a half one that's one why, loan that's why it needs to be kind of all together all together okay makes sense ownership has to be common right uh typically the, a similar entity owning all the properties there are adders to the interest rate there are adders to underwritten debt service coverage for link there's some underwriting nuances like we're underwriting to a repair reserve a little higher than a normal deal but they'll consider those and they do them it's a good option especially if you're in a place where you'd have to kind of group together your properties to get to that sort of value. That's a nice. I think what they do is they don't want to see you grouping together loans to get to a $1.1 million deal just to get in the program. But there's deals where it really makes sense to finance a couple properties under one loan. And and they they have options for that if you need it. And I'm sure that that helps a lot with their goal because in these places, if you had to link together a few properties, obviously it's an affordable area. That's why it's really right. Yeah, either smaller properties or, you know, you're dealing with properties on a per unit basis may may not be worth as much. Right. Then that's going to be under, probably under lended on anyways, because then that's, these are small loans. So right. not everyone's doing those. So it's nice to be able to group them together and right. make it a more meaningful loan amount. Great. Then what, let's see, what else? Closing costs, I think we haven't touched. And that's pretty programmatic as well. All of these loans require, we've mentioned before, third-party legal counsel, a single counsel, we call them. You, the, the single counsel would re- be representing Freddie Mac and CBRE on the lending side. And then an appraisal is required on every transaction. A physical risk report is required on every transaction. And then there would be searches, public searches on sponsors and borrowing entities just for background checks and right. things of that nature. Typically, we're seeing closing costs, lender closing costs between thirteen dollars and $15,000 which is pared down and streamlined. Maybe a bank's going to be cheaper than that. But, you know, for non-recourse lending, this is about as good as we see. Right. And a conventional kind of more normal non-recourse loan, you could be double that in lender legal pretty yeah. quick. Where then, and then, because the, the way, I mean, all the ones I've done that I can recall with CB, it's, it was $7,000 for the third parties. And then that's the reports you talked about, appraisal, yep. physical, and sometimes some sort of Searches. environmental search. Too, yeah. Plus the borrower searches and then 7,000 give or take legal. I mean, legal's become legal probably comes in in between 65, 6,200 and and seven grand. You know, if there's a legal nuance that creates a little more work, a tick borrower, for example, something like that, there may be a little additional cost, but I think we see most of those coming in in the low 6,000s. Nice. That's definitely streamlined. And then the, what about origination to the intermediary? How do you... I mean, certainly there's origination fees at at times, depending on the, the transaction, you know, that varies. I mean, it could be depending on the deal size, anywhere from zero to one point. If you're dealing with, dealing with a small deal, that's going to be more work and, uh, you know, you know, require extra effort on your underwriting team and, and sort of this, the Freddie Mac underwriting team. There may be a push to charge an ri- origination fee, but as you get to bigger deals, maybe there's flexibility there. And then that's too, cause then on a, on a bigger deal, your you, the origination fee can be kind of worked into the rate is what you're, you're yeah. getting at more easily. And, and, and frankly, on a smaller deal too, it's harder on a smaller deal. But Freddie Mac knows there's bank competitions out there that close right. these deals for very low cost. Right. There's there's flexibility to get get deals done in that regard for lower cost. Right. Real real efficient program in terms of the the closing costs and then to one thing I'll touch on where this is then it ends up more maybe on the borrower but then Freddie and I think Fannie they require more title endorsements than like probably a typical bank. Not maybe for I'd say for that on the deals I'm doing I pencil in like about two thousand dollars. 
extra for that. Mm-hmm. Just an extra. It depends on the bank. Maybe if you're some banks is probably just they want that same stuff. But then right. I have noticed that they they're asking for quite a few endorsements on at closing, which is factor that in. If we're saying it's about thirteen thousand to do the loan, then it's rounded up to fifteen. Right. That's what it's gonna. That's what it's gonna be. Let's talk next about ongoing loan covenants. For these loans, that's a big advantage against really banks. There aren't any ongoing loan covenants. There are reporting requirements, as you know well. A couple times a year, we're going to ask for a property operating statements. We're going to ask for rent rolls. These loans are service. There's a servicer involved in all these loans. CBRE, we have a servicing department that services all these loans. So if debt service coverage dips below 1%, occupancy is very low for an ongoing period of time. They may reach out and, and ask why and get involved into, you know, how it's going to be rectified, get an understanding of what's going on at the property. There, there certainly aren't loan covenants in place that you have to follow per the loan documents, but that doesn't mean that there aren't eyes on what's going on at the property and there isn't going to be a, an effort to understand what's going on and how it can be approved if property performance is dipped. Right. I think a huge, huge advantage for this program is not having an ongoing debt service coverage ratio covenant you have the let's say compare it with the bank loan right where they need if you're dip below a 120 debt cover is a default right. now you're, there's a conversation how are you going to cure this default where on the fannie and freddie small balance there is a conversation too but since there's not a loan covenant there's not a default and they're just basically they're what they can do at that point is just, we're going to ask you for more information because we're worried right but that's that's it Right. As far as I know. No, you're right. There are not any loan covenants like that in the loan documents, and it's a big benefit. But there, there's certainly, there certainly are reporting requirements. Right. They're strict about that. They want to see that we see rent rolls 90 days after the year's up. We see property level P&Ls 90 days after the year's up. They want to continually monitor the performance of the properties from a servicing standpoint. But you're not going to get put into fault if something dips a little bit. Right. I think there's also inspections. Just you're yeah. in there. I'm, I'm not sure what the frequency is because it's, it's, there's... They're supposed to be biannual inspections. Our servicing team would coordinate a biannual every other year inspection on all the loans we do. At those inspections, if there were some deficiencies when we originated the loan, say some minor repairs right. needed to be made, they'd confirm that was the case. And just look at the general overall condition of the property. That does happen every couple of years, but but that's right. going to be the extent of it. I started smiling and trailing off on the frequency because I feel like I'm being constantly asked for some inspection. Because also your insurance company often wants to go through the properties. And then and then once you right have, have thirty properties, then it just feels like they're just constantly being asked for some. You have to hire a full time employee so, to yeah. handle inspections on their so, own, or uh, just to flip it to somebody, or we just push it to the property manager right away. Right, like the deal we just bought in Arizona, we. Insurance company needs needs someone to actually, this one, it's like a self-inspection. I don't know if it's a COVID thing, but you need some exact photos. Right. Just flip that to the property manager. So and that, try and that, to yeah. make it easy on yourself. You don't need to necessarily meet the, it's not like the head of Freddy's going out there to your property. They're right. sending a third-party person who's, they, they need to check a few things and get on to the next one. It's it's prudent to have boots on the ground as a lender, and that's what we do. And like you said, it's, it's oftentimes a third-party vendor. They want to tour the property with someone who's knowledgeable of the property. The property manager at that asset is perfect, and they're not at a witch hunt for anything. They're just right. making sure that the property is performing well. There's not any life safety concerns, things of that nature. And it's, it's really similar to what the insurance company is inspecting for. Right. We'll get these back, and it'll be your battery and your security light in the hallways dead or some and i don't even know who it's i'm not i'm not even paying much attention to 
who it's from, the lender or the insurance company, because it's one of the lot of similar stuff where it's right. okay. Well, great, we got a free battery test. Then let's, let's right. fix it. So, but then also one thing that I think would be worth touching on, because it it kind of seems to keep coming up on deals where they're looking at or we get contacted a lot by these like Airbnb companies. Then what would be allowed for Airbnb with with Freddie or Fannie? Like that yeah, sort of short. Good model. question. And that has become a less popular question over the past couple of years, but became a popular question a couple of years after the property or the program started. In the small balance world, if there's any short-term leasing done by the owner, that's a no-no. It doesn't fit for the program. If there's a lease by our landlord to a company that specializes in short-term rentals, it doesn't work. Got it. If there's a individual tenant that you sign a lease to, they go through their background checks, they qualify as a tenant, and unbeknownst to you, the owner, that tenant is in turn VRBOing their unit. There's not a whole lot of control anyone has over that. That stuff happens and I guess is allowed, but it's not technically allowed. Like if you know it's going to happen, we should bring that up up front and probably they're not going to be okay with it. But in the case where it's a true tenant of yours doing it without your knowledge, it happens and and, and that's fine. And then but you're not, you can't rent to a company who would do it or an individual that's like their business. Right. But if a tenant starts doing it, it's not like Freddie or Fannie is forcing you to put in your lease. This is banned. Right. Right. Okay, exactly right. It yeah. happens. It happens. We have to assume it happens and it's just too hard to control. Right. We were just looking at a deal in, in Tempe, Arizona, and they, I think every renovated unit, this one Airbnb operator and individuals kept taking them down right because they're allowing that i told the broker like that's gonna jam up probably a lot of people's permanent financing options yes and then he had some explanation that i'm like well i think five percent or ten percent is allowed and and in the conventional program it's a a little different there is a small in in freddie and fanny's conventional program there's a small percentage that would be allowed in the small balance world it's not it's not on my radar screen at all and this was a small balance size thing but i don't don't know it's not advisable to get into it with just explain where I think I know differently or something where and right and also it's a different market who knows maybe maybe there could have been a different rule and more a vacation area where in yeah. Phoenix we need to cap it at 10 because every that's enough or something but interesting because that's something where at least a few years ago we were getting constantly contacted by companies where some sort of Airbnb like concept of Sonder and just Bungalow all these these companies where it's something like that but they're signing a corporate lease with you. Like it's in their company's name. I know it's not, I, I knew it wasn't allowed. Yeah, we saw a lot. I saw a lot. I've seen a lot of it over the past several years and it's a pretty easy and quick conversation on my side. Cause it, that comes up uh, actually fairly often on deals we're looking at where it just came up, but also like a, a building will be built. They're trying to move the units and then an Airbnb person comes to me and says, I'll take five. Right. Sounds great. You know, and then they don't, they don't realize then, okay, if this person wanted to do, this loan program now we're that's just like that's a hassle that's five empty units once we once once uh, that bar were closed right exactly they want to they got to clear them up yeah, I, have, I have some clients that were that had several of them like you said but then got out of it as those leases turn they they went with traditional market tenants because it did hamstrung them from a financing right just something to know if you want to use the program going in if you're, if you're using a different lender don't just don't worry about it but right you know something something to know what about on the loan docs? How much room is there to negotiate the docs? There's really no room. I mean, I know the documents pretty well. Obviously, I lean on single legal counsel to get into the the nitty gritty of those loan documents. 
but there's virtually zero negotiation, which again, makes it easy, unfortunately, I guess for borrowers, but, and well, what's interesting, I would say the starting point of a lot of other lenders, loan docs, you're, you're negotiating to get them to more of a range where these ones are starting out. Right. That's my experience. Where I, I don't get, I, I'm trying to think of complaints I get about the loan documents. I've had a handful over the five years, but for the most part, I don't hear much about it. So. For what it is, I think it's fair. I did, were we the first, the first loan of any type I do, I'm reading those docs cover to cover. I'm right. maybe the one borrower who's read <laughs> no, I think a lot are page loan agreement, but that I just know. get involved when they have problems. I remember we read it and actually some of the changes they made to them too recently, this is more clear what's going on. And for the, we don't need to get into that level of detail, but they, I, some of the changes they make, then I, even at this point I ask, can I get a track changes version against the prior ones? And then I can right. to see the changes with, cause they, they do change the form loan docs, you know, every couple of years, there mm-hmm. was a, some bigger changes a couple of years ago that I remember just right. asking the attorney for a track changes version versus like another deal that were they friendly and gave it to you. Good. I was just, well, you're, you're using the same attorney yes. on most, Right. All the, the loans and he already pretty like yeah. know each other at this point too. Yeah. So but you think that's that's kinda it on the, the program unless there's anything else you wanted you can think of to touch on. No, I mean it was a great opportunity to talk about it. I think we talked about nuances and small differences between Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, but both are good programs, both offer competitive rates, both are obviously non recourse. That's a big benefit to a lot of borrowers. And I think Another comment to make is both Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae are committed to the program for the long term. And we constantly hear that the program's not going away. We're, of course, glad to hear that, but really do believe in, in our program and believe that these are competitive, competitive loans. And actually, just when you were saying Freddie and Fannie, I just realized we, we have this Freddie sheet. Out, yes. And so you did steer this conversation to almost all Freddie towards the tail end there. Then I guess real quick for Fannie, they have different different options on fixed rate, and then they're more yield. Yeah, you bring heavy. up a good so point there. Because I I guess to finish on that, they do kind of ebb and flow. Like at some point in 2018, something was going on where Freddie, I think I had done the value add quickly. They were like, let's wait a second on this loan or something on the, the one of the deals we did, the 3100 prepan. We went, we went to Fannie. There was a reason. It was either Freddie was kind of at a capacity or they were like, we don't. We want you to wait on that deal, but then Fannie, which is a totally different right entity, was like, "We're fine with this loan, Let's right?" Make it. And you're right; they have ebbed and flowed interest rate wise over the sort of five six years I've been doing this. They're two different entities. Rates are up and down. Pretty much their programs have stayed the same. Same. We talked about five, seven, and ten year fixed rate rates with Freddie Mac. Fannie offers five, seven, and ten, but then goes longer twelve, fifteen, and thirty. For those that would be interested in longer rates. And like I mentioned, those are going to be higher rates, but makes sense for some borrowers. I remember in 2018, that loan I'm talking about, we did, we rates are running up. I made the genius move. I locked in a 12 year fixed rate yield maintenance deal at five. Can't win them all, Drew. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, that, that'll happen. <laughs> I can't predict it, but yeah, things are running up heavy. So like, right. You know, who would have predicted right. you know, the, the move from there? But Great. Well, kind of last couple of questions then. What can just generally then, what can a, a borrower, borrower do best position themselves? We're going to bring a deal to Freddie, let's say. Right. Is there something I should be doing ahead of time? Well, that's a good question. I mean, of course, we want that property to be stabilized. We want to be at 90% occupancy or better. And you're going to put long-term financing on it. In theory, you'd want those rents to be at an optimal level because you're going to lock up financing with a prepayment penalty. Access to cash out financing may not be there for at least five years. 
but but really we're going to request P&Ls, we're going to request rent rolls, that should be easy. Personal financial information wise it's not too difficult, personal financial statements things of that nature, but once those properties are sort of in a position where they're stabilized, it's always worth talking about what the options are. Right. Really just sort of prepared, sort of knowing what's what's coming was sort of the answer I whatever you can work with your lender. Yep. You know, ahead of time to know what what I need to prepare. Get those get those P and L's together, get those rent rolls together, put them in front of an originator like me, and then talk about the nuances for underwriting. Do we have to talk about what an appraisal taxes are going to look like? Is your R and M sort of in line with the market? But it, that all starts with just getting the detail on a stabilized property. Well, Jim, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for being on. How can the Rise and Invest listeners get in touch with you? Absolutely. And thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun, Drew. Always a pleasure to sit with you. Very simply, email address for me is james.voza, V as in Victor, O-Z-Z-A at CBRE.com. Or a phone call works just as well. A telephone number 847-254-0698. Great. Thanks for being on. And now you've heard really everything about the Fannie and Freddie small balance programs. I think it's the best single option for non-recourse stabilized debt on multifamily properties. Definitely, if you like what you heard today, reach out, put one on your property, give it a try. So thanks again. Great. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us on the Rise and Invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website, The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities and the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.